We've got lots of ground to cover this morning, so let's go ahead and turn our attention to uh, our scripture this morning. If you have the ability, want to encourage you to stand with us. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, pins the following words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we began our study of verses 14 through 19. We didn't quite finish Uh, that study. Let me pick back up there this morning. We're going to pick back up in 19, but you've got in your outline this morning, if you happen to miss last week, uh, those fill-ins. Let me draw your attention there to your outline. Uh, Number one, we looked at the posture of our prayer life. Paul gives us a model uh, beginning in verses 14 and 15, and that model is one of humility and reverence. When we come before the Lord, we come with boldness. We have unfettered access to the throne of God, but we come in a posture of humility and reverence, recognizing that He is God and I am not. He is creator and I'm creation. He's master, I'm servant. He's king, I'm subject. We come with humility and reverence. And then we looked at Paul's request. I think Paul makes three requests, potentially four, depending on how you kind of divide the, the text up here. But three requests that we looked at. Request number one is that we would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. You remember I mentioned last week, if, if you are looking for what to pray for one another, model your prayers or emulate your prayers uh, off of biblical prayers. And you will have some great content to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to be praying that each other would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. That was Paul's first request back in verses 16 and the beginning of verse 17 of chapter 3. Paul's second request is that we would comprehend the vast love of Christ, that we would understand it, that we would be rooted and grounded. Remember, rooted is an agricultural term, grounded is an architectural term. Paul wants us to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. In other words, in the gospel. That the pilings of our faith will be driven deep into the soil of the gospel. And we paused last week before we uh, ventured out into request number three. And so we're going to pick back up there this morning. That's number four on your outline at the top there. And that is this. Paul prays this for the Ephesian believers and thus for us. And that is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You have your Bible there sitting in front of you. Look at chapter 3. Look at the last phrase of verse 19. Paul says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's final petition. Filling with the fullness of God. That's a glorious reality. I mean, what a God who loves us so much that his supreme goal in bringing us to himself is to make us like himself by filling us with himself. What a God. 
What a God. I mean, who can comprehend all this implies? The very purpose of our salvation is that we might glorify God by looking in increasing measure like Christ as we're filled with Him. You'll remember last week, if you were here with us, mentioned that we are filled already when we come to Christ. We are filled at conversion. We're not talking about a conversion filling here. We're talking about the process of sanctification here in verse 19. The very purpose of our salvation is that we might glorify God by looking like Him. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the riches of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Which, by the way, 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us the the formula, so to speak, or the recipe for growing in Christ-likeness. As we behold His glory, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the other. There is no transformation apart from beholding. Okay? We must be beholding the Lord, primarily in His Word. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God has told us everything He wants us to know this side of eternity in His divinely revealed Word to us. But there is no transformation apart from beholding the Lord in His Word. Love that word filled there. It's the Greek word pleroo. It's one of Paul's favorite words. As a matter of fact, if you, if you go back and do a word study through the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus, just the letter that we're studying here, Paul uses the word filled or filling or fullness over and over and over again. And as you venture on into the other letters that he's written, you'll see that that is a common theme throughout his writing. Paul loves the word full, fullness, filling, filled with. That word there, filled, on the surface, its meaning is obvious, means to uh, to, to lack nothing. To be filled is to lack nothing. You think about filling a glass to the brim or to its overflowing, it, it, it lacks nothing. And that is the surface meaning of the word here. But more than that, the word filled here carries with it the idea of pervasively influencing or fully possessing or even dominating. Now, look back at your Bible and implant that word there the word filled here carries the idea of pervasively influencing or fully possessing or dominating. In other words, to be filled up with all the fullness of God means to be dominated by Him and thus emptied of self. It's not to have much of God and little of self. It's to have all of God and none of self. That is what sanctification means, right? That's what John the Baptist said. He must become greater, I must become less. That's the process that takes place through the Christian life as we grow. It's interesting to note that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that the church, which is the body of Christ, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says we, the redeemed, the church, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. But now Paul prays that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That little word we've talked about multiple times uh, here lately, paradox. Paul loves to write using paradox here. We shouldn't be a stranger to paradox at this point. Paul uses it often. It's the tension between the already and not yet. That's a fixture in Paul's writing. You have to understand that to understand what he means when he writes. He he writes uh, with this already, but at the same time, not yet. Or already commensurated, but not yet consummated. Begun, but not finished. 
It's the way Paul writes oftentimes in his letters. We've seen examples of this already. We're seated in the heavenly places and our citizenship is in heaven, but yet we're sitting here this morning. We haven't yet possessed the full reality of that truth yet. The mysteries of Christ have been made known, but yet Paul preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. Made known, but yet unsearchable at the same time. Paul wants us to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, but then he tells us that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. We've been filled with all the fullness of Christ, but yet Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, in one sense, we already are full, again, in Christ. That takes place the moment that we're converted, the moment that you place your hope, your saving, anchoring faith in Christ and in Christ alone. He removes that heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in you, genuinely converted, all the blessings of God, all the promises there, yes and amen. Everything is complete at conversion. But in a sanctifying sense, in a growing sense, in a Christian life sense, we are being filled with the fullness of God. See, we already have redemption. We already had the forgiveness of sins coupled with all the means of grace. That's the word of God, prayer, the fellowship of like-minded believers. Those are things that we refer to as the means of grace. We want to be taking advantage of the means of grace. God has given those to us for our benefit. His word, prayer, memorizing scripture, studying the word, being a part of the local body of Christ, the fellowship of like-minded believers. In one sense, the Christian has already been made full in Christ. See, what Paul's praying for here in verse 19 is that the Ephesian believers, and we as well, would be all that Christ wants us to be. That is spiritually mature. That's really what verse 19 is. It's a prayer for maturity. Spiritual maturity, to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a prayer for spiritual maturity. And since God himself is the standard, this means that we are to be perfect as he is perfect and holy as he is holy, both in position and in daily practice. See, positionally, we're complete. We're full in Christ. But practically, we enjoy that grace only as we, by faith, lay hold of it. God has given us all of his divine resources again. Practically, we're growing in godliness. We're being filled each day as we take advantage of the means of grace. What a calling it is that we have. Think about that. We've been called to be filled with the fullness of God. What a calling. It's no wonder that, that Paul prayed and asked the Lord that he might live a life worthy of the gospel to which he had been called. Paul has uttered some high theology Uh, in his prayer in verses 14 through 19. And theology, if correctly understood, write this down. Theology, if correctly understood, always leads to doxology, praise. Theology, rightly understood, always leads to praise. And that's exactly what Paul does, picking up in verse 20. Let me turn your attention there. Look back at your Bible. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul has prayed that we would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Paul has prayed that we would comprehend the vast love of Christ. And he has prayed that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And now he moves into praise. 
He, he moves into praising the one who can accomplish all those things. Let me turn your attention to the first point for this morning's message. Number one on your outline there. When you think you've asked God for too much, remember that he can do immeasurably more. When you think you've asked God for too much, remember that he can do immeasurably more. You see, the Apostle Paul was accustomed to asking God for extravagant blessings on behalf of his readers. In the prayer that we've been looking at here, he petitioned the Father for spiritual blessings of extraordinary value. Matter of fact, one old pastor said this, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request than what Paul has prayed for here in verses 14 through 19. And so the question then is, well, Paul, have you gone over the top? I mean, have you just prayed too big? Have you just prayed too much? Have you just asked for too much in what you've asked God for? And friends, let me tell you this morning, that would be impossible. That would be impossible. It's never possible to ask for too much because God, our Father, His capacity to give always exceeds our capacity to ask or even imagine. Our Father's capacity to give, our Father's capacity to bless us in Christ is greater than our capacity to even ask or imagine. You can never ask too much. Now, keep all the context here in mind. It doesn't mean that I can just ask God for whatever, whenever. God's not a genie in a bottle, so to speak. We're, we're talking uh, about humbly and reverently coming before him, but we're also asking that he would do in us that which is spiritual, not material. Okay? It's never possible for us to ask too much from God spiritually because his capacity to give always exceeds our capacity to ask. The text before us here, verses 20 and 21, it's what's known as a doxology. Doxology comes from the Greek word doxa. Uh, It just means to, to glory in or to glorify is what the Greek word means there. And so a doxology, a doxology then is a short, spontaneous ascription of praise and glory to God who alone is worthy of our worship. Doxology. Doxa means to to glory in, to glorify. Paul renders praise to God here in verse 20 for his immeasurable abilities. Love that word able there. Look at your Bible. Now to him who is able. That word able there is the Greek word dunamai. It means to, uh, to be strong or to be mighty, to be capable, to be powerful. Now to him who is strong, now to him who is mighty, now to him who is capable, now to him who is powerful, is what Paul is saying here. So when we talk about those things which Christ is able to do, we mean those things which he is strong enough and mighty enough to accomplish, things for which his power makes it easy for him to do. I love the words of Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 32, he says this, he says, Ah, Lord, it is you that have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. And the very one who spoke creation into existence, who named the stars and who draws them out by night at na- or by name, nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. 
You see, the doxology in verses 20 and 21 is not only a fitting conclusion to Paul's lofty prayer in verses 14 through 19, but it's also a very appropriate expression of gratitude and praise for all the blessings that he has so generously poured out on us, the church. I'm going to approach the text a little bit differently this morning. What I want to do uh, in order to apply the text is I want to turn our attention to five other passages in the New Testament that clearly teach us what Christ in his mighty power is able to do. Hopefully this will bring some application here uh, for us. So we're going to do some walking in the word this morning. Are your fingers ready? Turn with me then to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. The first thing that I want you to notice here, this is A on your outline, he is able to save. He is able to save. The writer of Hebrews says this in verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost. You see, other than God's glory, the salvation of lost sinners is the theme of the entirety of Scripture. Scripture points from its third chapter to a promised Redeemer who would save his people from their sins. And then verse by verse, from Genesis chapter 3 on through Revelation, verse by verse, the volume of God's salvation anthem is turned up until its magnificent crescendo as Jesus hung on a cross paying sin's penalty for us. You see, the context of Hebrews 7 deals with the eternal nature of Christ, maybe more specifically the eternal priesthood of Christ. Remember the Old Testament sacrificial system? Just think for a minute. Let your mind kind of drift back to your Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system The the Levitical priesthood that we saw there, it was temporary and it was transitory in nature. It, it It was never intended to be permanent, but rather it was always looking forward to its perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our mighty Savior. You see, before Christ, the high priest would have to come into the Holy of Holies and make offering annually to appease the righteousness and the justice of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that these former priests, before Christ, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing on in service. But then in verse 16, so bring it back up to Hebrews chapter 7, where you're looking there, verse 16. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to be our high priest by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 24, look there, uses similar language. He, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And then verse 25, where I told you to walk to, consequently, that is because of his eternal nature, he is able to save completely or to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system was an indicator It was a shadow of the reality that is to come. Paul talked about that in Colossians chapter 2. But he tells us the reality is found in Christ. A lot of what we see in the Old Testament is shadow. Its significance or its substance is found in Christ. Because we have an indestructible Savior, we have an indestructible and abiding salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost. This has the idea of completely 
entirely, without hindrance or limitation, he is able to save. Christ's blood can save the vilest sinner. Do you know how I know that? Because such was I. And if you know Christ, such were you. Christ can save to the uttermost. No individual is outside of the saving reach of Christ. Not one. We can learn a lot about the mighty power of Christ when we consider what it is that he was able to save us from, namely our debt of sin. Think about this. If you're drowning, a lifeguard may be able to come and rescue you. If you're critically injured, a doctor may be able to attend to you. But there is only one who can give life to a spiritually dead man. There is only one who can make us alive in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. There's only one who can make us alive in Christ. Considering Christ's powerful ability to save. I was reminded this week of the wonderful lyrics of the glorious hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Listen to this, speaking about Jesus. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted on high. Remember he seated in the heavenlies? Now in heaven exalted on high, hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus is a mighty Savior. He is able to save to the uttermost. Want to know what he's able to do? The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, he is able to save to the uttermost. No one is outside of his saving reach. Second thing I want to draw your attention to, your moving fingers ready, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He is able to guard. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's also able to guard. Paul writes this, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This passage falls in the context of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Maybe some of you are suffering or have suffered for the sake of the gospel. Paul's encouraging Timothy here not to be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, but rather to share in suffering for the glory of the gospel by the power of God. And then Paul reminds Timothy that it's only the gospel that will enable him to endure under and through such suffering. Look back at verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Paul says this. He says, Timothy, God saved us, and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Jesus has abolished death and brought you life and immortality through the gospel. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, Timothy, as you do ministry, it's important that the gospel be anchored deeply in your heart. As you do ministry, it is paramount, 
It is important that the gospel be anchored deeply in your heart. Friends, it's only the truth of the gospel that frees us to live risk-filled, God-honoring lives. We don't always like living risk-filled lives. Sometimes we'd rather play it safe. But the gospel, the truth of the gospel, freedom in Christ, forgiveness of sin, assurance of divine pardon, confidence in our eternal residence, that frees us up to live risky lives for the gospel, making Christ known. That's what David said in the Psalms. What can mortal man do to me? I mean, all you can do is take my life, but that's just dispatching me to paradise. There's a riskiness that we can have when we understand the gospel and how it applies to our lives. Now, we don't want to be foolish. There's a difference between living risk-filled lives and being foolish. But the gospel frees us to live risk-filled lives for the glory of God because we know that Jesus Christ is powerful enough to guard and secure our salvation. Nothing can can happen. No circumstance can come to pass. Nothing can take place that can rob us or strip us of the great salvation that has been entrusted to us. He is able to guard that. So I was studying this week. I was reminded of a particular business that ensures us, or likes to ensure us, that they're able to be a guard for us. Banks. Oftentimes put a sticker on their windows or a placard on the counter that reminds us that they are FDIC insured. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And that notice is supposed to give you and I the assurance that every dollar you slide across the teller's counter is going to be securely held for you until you are ready to come and withdraw those funds. While there may be a measure of safety and security there, those funds are only secured on the basis of an insurance policy which that bank possesses. And guess who underwrites that insurance policy? Your federal government. I don't know about you, but I don't have my faith all wrapped up in the FDIC and their ability to secure God's finances that have been entrusted to me. Now, the point of my illustration is not to go close your bank accounts, not to go pull all your money out and stuff it under mattresses. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I do want to encourage you that unlike the uncertainty of a bank to be able to guard what you have entrusted to them, Jesus Christ possesses no such weakness. At no point has he ever been concerned with the possibility that he might not be able to faithfully guard our salvation because it's secured on the basis of his righteous blood. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, Timothy, do you remember who it is that holds the title deed to your salvation? Paul wants Timothy to know, to be certain with unwavering, assured confidence that Christ is able to guard the salvation that has been entrusted to us. Interesting to note that word guard there. It's the Greek word phulasso. It was actually a military term. It was used uh, speaking of a soldier who was on watch, who was accountable with his own life to protect that which had been entrusted to his care. Think the grave of Jesus Christ. Okay? Military term used to speak of a soldier on watch who was accountable with his own life to protect that which was entrusted to his care. Friends, if... Jesus Christ himself is the one who's doing the guarding, then no power in the created cosmos can ever sever the gift of his grace that is secured by his righteous blood and the deposit of his spirit, which is a guarantee of the inheritance which is to come. That, my friends, that, my friends, 
unlike any FDIC or any other guarding that may take place. It's a guarding that is perfect. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is a mighty guardian. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to guard that which has been entrusted to us. Got your fingers ready? Here we go. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. He is able to help. The writer of Hebrews says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, Jesus in his earthly life was tried and tempted in every way. He stood in the crosshairs of every one of Satan's arrows. Spurgeon once said this, speaking about Jesus. For 30 years and upwards, Jesus had to struggle and wrestle against temptations more numerous and more terrible than man had ever known before. Adam fell when tempted by a woman. Eve fell when the serpent offered fruit to her. But Christ, the second Adam, stood invulnerable against all the shafts of Satan. He was tempted at all points like we are. Not one arrow out of the quiver of hell was spared. The whole were shot against him. Every arrow was aimed against him, and yet he stood victorious. Jesus took on our nature, took on flesh, human flesh, and he suffered every temptation that we have ever encountered. He understands the pressure of temptation. He understands it more than we can possibly imagine. And so he's able to sympathize with us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted and tried in every way, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Let me ask you this question, friends. Where do you run when you're faced with daily temptations? Where, where do you run? To to whom do you run? Where do you run to when you face the temptations of this world? Do you just toss the towel in and give in to the desires of your flesh? I submit that sometimes we do. You try and gut out the temptation in your own strength? I submit that sometimes we do. Or do we cast ourselves upon him who is faithful and will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear? Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, and he is faithful. He'll provide a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. You see, not only is Christ able to help us in our pursuit of holiness, but he's willing. Get this, not only is he able, but he's also willing. What a tragedy it would be if we served a God who was able, but yet unwilling. That would be a tragedy. But God is both willing and able. How does he help? Well, he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the very one who said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus is a mighty helper. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to guard that which has been entrusted to us, and he is able to help us in our time of temptation. Fourthly, he is able to extend grace. Fingers ready? Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul says this, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. I love that, by the way. All sufficiency in all things at all times. That's what we have. That's how sufficient his grace is. So that you might abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, it's important to note the context here. We don't want to just pull verses out of their context and try to apply them where they may not apply. The context of this text is in light of giving. But I think the truth contained here extends into other areas of the Christian life. Let me ask you this question, though, just as we think about finances and giving. How mighty do you believe Christ to be in regards to your financial situation? How mighty do you believe Christ to be in regards to your financial situation? You see, how we think about and how we steward our finances speaks volumes about what we believe the character of God to be. Here's what I mean by that. To the degree that we believe Christ to be our mighty provider, we will be liberal, gracious investors of his resources into his kingdom work. Likewise, to the degree that we believe that Christ is unstable in his ability to provide for our needs, we'll be reserved in our giving. Instead of being gracious givers, we'll be suspicious keepers. If we don't believe that Christ is able to provide for us, now he's never promised us everything that we want, but he has promised to take care of us to the degree that we believe that that Christ is unstable in his ability to provide for us, instead of being gracious givers, we'll be suspicious keepers of what actually doesn't belong to us in the first place. We're just stewards of God's resources. He's just entrusted them to us temporarily. And everything that has been entrusted to us, we will one day give an account for how we used it. Remember sitting in a class one time uh, on stewardship, and the gentleman that was teaching it said, if you understand that every dollar you have in your pocket belongs to God, that will change the way you think about a Coke machine. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you can't buy a Coke. That's, That's not what it means, but it will change your perspective on how you use God's resources. Friends, if God provides for the birds of the air who neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns and he takes care of the lilies of the field and the grass of the field, will he not also take care of you? Don't ever forget that God is the giver of all good things and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The text goes on to say, speaking of liberal giving, that Christ is able to make all grace abound to you. Let me ask you this question. Here's a pop quiz. This is, think back to Ephesians now. How... How rich in grace is Christ? 
what, what does his grace checkbook look like? It's immeasurable. It's unfathomable. It's unsearchable. His grace is immeasurable. That's back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. His grace can never be depleted. God's provision for us is sufficient in all things at all times. And the grace that he gives us allows us to abound in every good work. Paul said, he did, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, all things there are spiritual things, by the way. We can really take Romans 8.32 out of context and apply it in a way that it was never meant to be implied. But God, who did not spare his own son, will he not also along with him give us all good things? The answer to that question is, you better believe it. He will. He's a mighty provider with mighty grace. E on your outline. He is able to finish what he started. He's able to finish what he started. He's able to save. He's able to guard. He's able to help. He's able to extend grace. He's able to finish what he started. Moving fingers, Jude 24. How many chapters in Jude? One chapter. Well done. So do you say Jude chapter 1, verse 24, or do you just say Jude 24? The answer is yes. He is able to finish what he started. This Jude, the brother of Christ here, listen to what he says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Friends, this just might be one of the most glorious doxologies, just like our text in Ephesians, which we're going to come right back to in a second here, in all of Scripture. It speaks about the power of Christ and his redemptive work. See, we were born in Adam. We were born under the curse of sin, guilty as a sinner. We fully deserved God's righteous justice for the transgression of his law. We were completely unable to plead our case before him, unable to litigate ourselves out of the chains of sin and death until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our mighty Savior, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, at the appointed time, he reached into our sinful, broken souls and he made us alive in Christ. And in that transaction, Christ imputed all of his righteousness to our account and all of our sin was paid for at the cross. The declaration was made justified. We were declared righteous, blameless, spotless, and now safely in Christ. We're freed from the dominion of sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. But not only does Christ have the power to save you from your sin, not only does he have the power to guard your salvation, not only does he have the power to graciously help us in times of temptation, but he also has the power to moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, keep you from stumbling in sin and to bring you to the end firmly in his grasp. If you're in Christ, you have the assured confidence that he will present you at the last day blameless before his presence. Matthew Henry, the helpful commentator, once said this. He said that we'll be presented not as those who have never been faulty, but as those whose faults shall not be imputed to their ruin. 
will be preserved and presented, not on the basis of our own merit or of our own record, not because of any righteousness that was intrinsic to us, but based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account and sustained in us. Edward Mote penned the lyrics to a well-known hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And he said this, When he, Jesus, shall come at trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless. I stand before the throne. Think about that. He's able to finish what he started. Christ will preserve his own and bring them into glorious inheritance that his blood has secured. Jesus never leaves anything undone. He's able to save. He's able to guard. He's able to help. He's able to extend grace. He's able to finish everything that he started. Here's F. Take your fingers and move back to Ephesians chapter 3 now. F on your outline is this. He's able to do all things. I've just given you five texts there in the New Testament that clearly show us what Christ is able by his mighty power to do, to bring some application for us. But now we turn our attention back to Ephesians 3.20. He's able to do all things. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see, in light of the sovereign ability of God, is it too much to entreat him to do more abundantly than all we can think or imagine? Can we ever put a strain by our asking on God's omnipotence? Can we ever exhaust his infinite ability? The answer to that, my friends, is a resounding no. God never overexerts himself in answering our prayers. God can never be overexerted. You can never outpray his ability to work and answer. But the question is, and this is an important one, when does God manifest his ability? Paul says here, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, the question, and it's an important one, is when does God manifest his power? When does God manifest this ability that we read about here in verse 20? When does he move in and do those things that are far more abundant than all we can ask or think? Well, Paul's told us in the preceding prayer. God exercises his divine ability when the Holy Spirit has empowered us. Verse 16, when Christ has indwelt us, when he is at home in our hearts, verse 17, when Christ's love has mastered us, verse 18, and when his fullness has filled us. That's when Christ steps in and does far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. How does he do this? Look back at verse 20. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. How? According to the power at work within us. Power, it's that Greek word dunamis. Paul's used it a lot in our study so far. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The power that is at work. It's that word energia. Same word used of Christ being raised from the dead there. The same power that raised Christ from the dead and enthroned him in the heavenlies and then raised us up with him and enthroned us with him is at work within us to achieve infinitely more than all we can ask or imagine. Namely, here's the important part, namely, 
that we would bear more resemblance to Christ. Far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine, namely, that we would bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you know what the greatest cause of worry and anxiety is in our lives? It's that we don't believe the truth of Ephesians 3.20. It's that we don't believe that he's able. We sinfully pick and choose what we'll trust him with. If we, if we think he can, quote, handle it, then we trust him. Of course, that's pseudo-trust. It's not really trust at all. If I think he can handle it, then I'm not trusting him with anything. Likewise, if I don't think he can handle it, if I don't think that he's powerful enough, then typically what we do is we either tether our trust to ourselves or to someone else, and that is always a bad idea. I don't think that, that God is powerful enough. I don't think he's able. And I tether my trust to myself or to someone else who I do think is able. That's a sure recipe for discouragement and frustration at best. You see, when we do that, when we tether our trust to ourselves or to someone else, we end up carrying burdens and yoking ourselves to anxieties that we were never called to bear. You see, Jesus Christ is our El Gibor, Old Testament. He is our mighty God. Mighty God. Is there a particular area that you've been struggling to trust and to abide in the might of Christ? Think about that for a minute. Is there a particular area of life that you've been struggling to trust and abide in Christ? If so, repent of your lack of faith and ask God for the grace to trust him anew. See, we should ask God to give us faith like Abraham. Our Sunday school class this morning was talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And this is what Paul writes of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. That's Paul's prayer. You'll be strengthened, right? He grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so my question to you is, are you fully convinced that God is able to do that which he's promised? He's not promised to grant your every wish, but he has promised to grow you in Christ's likeness. When you think that you've asked God for too much, remember that he can do immeasurably more as it pertains to fitting you for heaven. Number two, we'll be super brief here. God delights in blessing his children because he gets all the glory. Paul's talked about this over and over in Ephesians it's not a new theme. Paul says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What Paul's saying here in verse 21 is this. Because the power comes from God, the glory goes to God. Because the power comes from him, the glory must go to him. It's important to note that when we talk about giving God glory, we're not talking about adding anything to him. We're not, we're not talking about giving him something that he lacks We never add anything to him. Rather, to glorify God is to actively acknowledge who he is and what he has already done. The language that Paul uses here, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, signifies that believers, which that is the church, are only able to ascribe glory to God because they are in Christ Jesus. 
See, Jesus is both the mediator of God's activity towards us, he's also the mediator of our response of praise to the Father. Jesus is the mediator of all of God's blessings to us, but he also mediates all of our praise, which is imperfect to God. Notice that all this glorifying will have no end. The redeemed will glorify God in the present as well as in the coming ages and for all eternity. After the summation of all things under Christ, we will, encircled around the throne with all the heavenly host and the blood-bought saints from every tribe and nation and language, praise God for his glorious plan of redemption, and we will do so for eternity without end. As long as God desires to get the glory through the church and in Jesus Christ, we can be sure that God, in ways that are surprising to us at times and even imperceptible, will magnificently exceed our expectations to his everlasting honor and our everlasting praise. God delights in blessing his children because he gets all the glory. You can never out-ask God. His capacity to give will always exceed your capacity to ask.